2: My mission is simple to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I call. other people make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain, but I am teaching you tonight. So call me at 1 800 743 CBC or tweet me, Jim Kramer. Tech companies never call it slowing. You know what they call it? They call it optimization. It's a dreaded term. It's the kiss of death for any high-flying tech stock. Customer optimization means missed quarters, blown revenue projections, and heartbreak for shareholders. Those worries drove the Nasdaq into a seemingly endless abyss for weeks on end this fall until the index came roaring back last week. Now, you know that many people considered last week's rally a one-hit wonder. I bet to disagree in a totally bullish fashion because it just keeps getting better for techie this morning. In a total surprise, no one was looking for this. A small enterprise software company with a funny name, Datadog, <laughs> changed the bearish tech narrative into a bullish one. What did Datadog do? They told us that the optimization process, where orders had gotten much harder to come by, is moderating. That statement and the accompanying strong numbers from this little company, well, okay, let's, you know, it's twenty-three. It's, oh, let me just check, because I think the idea of calling it little is something that possessed the media today. Oh, look at this. It's a $33 billion company. Its news sent the stock up a stunning 28.47% today. And the pin action shocked everyone, especially Legion of Short Sellers, who've been printing money by betting against tech stocks for months. And that's how you get a day where the Dow advanced to 57 points. S&P gains 0.28%. But the NASDAQ, filled with companies that were worried about optimization, shot up 0.90%. Almost 1%. With some huge gains among the biggest tech companies that you are so used to, and I hope you do own, keyed right off of Little, Datadog. So who is this Datadog to dominate the action? Is it like, I don't know, my dog, Ragu? Is it like my dog, Tony? Some of the other dogs I've been seeing around, like Riggins by our research director, Ben Stoto? No, it's a company that sits in the middle of an important tech segment by virtue of its work in what's known as software development, security, and operations. Or, as they cognoscenti say, DevSecOps. That's Yeah, they actually call it DevSecOps. Technically, Datadog helps its clients observe how its applications are performing and secure their data. I know sounds narrow, but in reality, this company told us that while there had been indeed a moderation in tech spending that was hurting all of tech, that moderation they are declaring is petering out, if not over, especially when it comes to anything touching on. Yes, you guessed it. A.I., artificial intelligence. Buyers took this to mean that Amazon and Microsoft, great allies of Datadog, have probably seen a similar surge in orders, as has Google Cloud. All of Datadog's known partners, companies like ServiceNow, companies like Meta Platforms, companies like Shopify, they saw their stock surge too. And then by midday, almost all of tech got caught up in the rally, including those only tangentially rated, rated, related to Datadog. Apple up 1.45%, Broadcom up nearly 2%, Salesforce up 2.1%. These stocks were no doubt heavily shorted. Sell, 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 sell. and now those who are short are being crushed. Sell, sell, sell. <laughs> Also, sure, you can say, Jim, enough it already right with the short sellers. But you need to know that a lot of the so-called smart money was indeed betting against tech. Figuring that the optimization, the elongation of sales cycles, the attenuated order process, that how do they come up with all these euphemisms for, like, business stinks? Uh, they were going to take a turn for the worst, not better. Now, the shorts did have history on their side. They're not a bunch of bozos, let alone Hedge or mountbanks. See, normally a small slowdown turns into a big one. It's the natural order of things, at least typically. But these are atypical times when it comes to huge secular trends like artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. Enterprises can't keep up if they don't spend on these issues. They have to. It's existential if they don't. The stakes in security remain incredibly high. As we get a new hack almost every day, hey, today there was a breach, a data breach at Las Vegas Sands. Plus, you need artificial intelligence, and you need to monitor sites to be sure they aren't being infiltrated. And that's right, again, in data dog sweet spot. Datadog didn't point, out, didn't point blank mention many customers, but it did point out that a major fintech company, a chain of convenience stores, and a Fortune 500 company all signed big contracts, and I mean huge, this quarter. Okay, so you could argue that Datadog alone couldn't ignite such a gigantic rally. You need more to get tech running like it did today. And there is more. The bond market. Rates came down again today because the Treasury Department raised a lot of money by selling for three-year notes for 4.5%, which is a far cry, by the way, from where people thought this would trade. Something maybe like 5% because people didn't like bonds last week. Now people buy this piece of paper at 4.5%. Why? Because they think short-term yields have peaked, and the Fed's done raising rates and may actually have to cut them. Something I doubt will happen, but could be in the cards. I'll have more to say about inflation later in the show. I think they're winning the war, just for for the record. But I want to go back in time. And this is really important because it shows you what's really at stake here for you and for me. I mean, really at stake. I'm going to go back to last Tuesday, the day before we had a 500-point rally, the day after, remember we had a 500-point rally in Dow Jones on Monday. And then beginning on that Tuesday, one week ago, so many seemingly smart people argued that there was simply no reason for the stock market to have soared higher Monday, other than we were oversold and due for bounce. End of the month selling, shorts too early, blah, blah, blah. We heard that all, that all week, as this market ground relentlessly higher, there was a skepticism that anything had really changed. How much research researchers say hasn't changed, hasn't changed, hasn't changed? People assumed that whatever was bad was probably going to be worse, and the experts stressed that paying up for any stock in that environment was just silly. Once again, I have to hark back to what I call the billionaire strategist media complex that never wants to admit things could ever get better, especially when we have two horrendous wars, an outright military adversary in Iran, a huge budget deficit, a feckless Congress, and the likely Republican nominee for president who seems to be pursued by prosecutors everywhere you look. But a lot of that's either unrelated to the market or already baked in. Me, I've always said the same thing to you. Sometimes you need to recognize that there are lots of bad things happening all the time, and yet the stock market can still rally. The world has always been a perilous place since I was born. Disappointment abounds. The center always seems like it won't hold. The blood dim tide never goes away. But what does that have to do with the price journeys multiple of the hyperscalers, Amazon and Microsoft? What does it mean when Datadog has a giant upside surprise? You may want to think stocks should trade off of geopolitics, but that would be... The stock market trades off the fortunes of individual companies and the much larger bond market. Right now, they're both going in the direction the bulls. This observation is incredibly important because I said yesterday, the bearish billionaires, overpaid strategists, and their sycophant lap dogs in the press have coalesced around the idea that stocks are just too dangerous for you to own. They don't want you in stocks. They want you in CDs. They don't care about you. They've created a shroud of doubt about everything, and it can't be removed or even ripped. And Even as years truly tries the rest of his life to do that. But what are they missing? Let's do that. Let's step back and say, OK, well, listen, you know, Kramer's a wise guy. But what are they missing? It's simple. They don't know the difference between a data dog and a down dog. They don't know DevSecOps from BlackOps. They think AI is overblown and large language models are like NFTs. They can't get their arms around any of this because they would, that would mean they would have to get their hands dirty in a bowl of MongoDB, another company that sits at the center of the enterprise software revolution. This stuff is what they dismiss as too granular too small for them. I'm too small for them. The billionaire strategist media complex is very strong. But let me ask you, not unlike Stalin when he asked about how many divisions the Pope had, how much money do these people manage every day? The answer is they have less impact on stock prices than you think. The billionaires are in bonds. The strategists for the most part have dug in their negative heels, and the media abdicates all responsibility. They always do. Yes, they are excellent, though, at amplifying the bearish feelings of the other members of the Saturnine trio. Me? What do I do? I read the darn tape, meaning I look at what stocks are popping on the ticker crawl in the morning. It was clear a few minutes after 7 a.m. that something was going on with the data dog. You had to be curious, examine what data dog had to say. You couldn't be dogmatic, trapped in negativity. I like that dogmatic data dog. You had to believe in bowling, meaning the pin action that could come from hitting the front pin of the tech phalanx. To me, the bearish strategists should convert while they still can. But how can they do that? These These guys are big-picture thinkers. They aren't going to pick up the data dog file, for heaven's sake, They're not going to talk to anyone at Amazon or Google or Meta or anyone else, because in the end, they just talk to each other. That's right. They talk to the twins, the media, the billionaires, and the other top-down commentators, all of whom say this rally has to fizzle because, well, isn't that what the smart money's saying? Bottom line. Sometimes the so-called smart money can be real stupid. They know nothing! I think last week was a transformational moment for the stock market. I've said that every single day. And if you haven't changed your mind to adjust to the new reality, I do think there's a chance you can be left behind. Oh, there'll be declines. But tomorrow, I don't know. But increasingly, those declines will spur more buying than more selling as we go to the end of the year. I'm going to Robert in New York. Robert.
1: Jim, I'm up in Saratoga, New York, and I got to tell you, you do make people money. You're
2: up oh yeah, There you go. Thank you. you. I mean, at least but, I'm trying. I mean, isn't it better no, if I come out here every try. day and say, hey, the tenure's bad. You should sell everything. I mean, you know, wait, exactly. what the... Heck? are aren't we, we should, supposed to try to help? What are we supposed Jim, to do? You know, you Just be like, like that, hey... You couldn't have said that any better. You You're don't need a weatherman right. to know which way the wind blows. Exactly. You didn't say pull it all out and let it go down the tubes. You you knew it was coming back. Okay? But yes, anyway, I did. Let's talk about, Jim. Yes, I did. Jim, you have, a fir- I know a firm's reporting their earnings. We're not going to talk about that, but that's a real good stock. But you got Pinterest. you got a great quarter. You buy Pinterest you right here. Guidance. You buy Pinterest. Well, you're not going to get a fight from me. I think Pinterest is doing everything right. they got that new CEO. He's a smart fella. And I do think that the site is kind of benign. It's kind of like my uh, my younger daughter would look at a Pinterest. Let's leave it at that. All right, I think last week marked the transformational change for the stock market. And if you are too busy following the so-called smart money, well let me tell you something. You're gonna be left behind. Oh man, buddy, tonight. After logging the best week of the year last week, could the averages continue to move higher or will like the Nasdaq fizzle? I'm tackling the technicals, find out what's coming. Plus, from Arizona to Ohio and all over the East Coast, you want to read a retail? How about we go to Tanger? 14 million square feet of it. I'm talking to the CEO after earnings. But first, one in five Lockheed Martin employees has served in uniform. And as we approach Veterans Day, I'm sitting down with the CEO of the company to find out how it continues to support those who protect and serve. So I want you to stay with Kramer.
1: miss a second of mad money follow at jim kramer on x have a question tweet kramer hashtag mad mentions send jim an email to mad at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-cnbc miss something head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
3: fact running a business is not getting easier on your wallet
2: The world feels like it's getting more and more dangerous. It, that's great news for your portfolio if you're on a defense contractor, though. This whole group roared after Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, but then it took a breather, pulling back substantially right up until the Hamas horrific attack on Israel. Now they're on fire again, especially because the situation in Gaza looks like it could spiral. Which brings me to Lockheed Martin, a stock that's up more than 12 percent versus where it was trading at the close of October 6th for the attack on Israel doesn't hurt that uh, Lockheed reported a very solid quarter, October 17th, well, they didn't raise their forecast, so Wall Street didn't care. I think this is a great moment for Lockheed, and I think as we get closer to Veterans Day, it's worth remembering this company is one of America's top employers of veterans. Last year, 30% of their new hires were former service members, and they were ranked number 10 in Forbes 2023 list of America's best employers for veterans, and I salute them for that. Let's take a close look with Jim Tickley. He's the chairman president and CEO of Lockheed Martin, an Air Force veteran himself. He used to fly a Lockheed C-141 BC. Star lifter. Mr. Tegler, welcome back to Man Money. Good evening, Jim. Great to be with you. Thank you for coming on, Jim. You know, Jim, it's a confusing time because we don't understand about the budget. We know that we need Lockheed Martin more than ever. But we, I guess what many of us, uh, commonsensically are trying to figure out is why shouldn't uh, Congress be actually spending a huge amount of money in defense, given the fact that everything's kind of changed in the last year, and therefore uh, get a sense that Lockheed Martin should be getting much more money from the government to do what it has to do?
4: Well, Jim, the uh, the nature and the size of the defense budget, that is a policy decision for the government, Congress, and the administration to make. Whatever the budget is, we're going to do whatever we can to advance deterrence and drive capability through to our armed forces to help prevent future armed conflict, especially anything that might involve the United States itself.
2: Okay. So tell me how it does work. You have hired so many veterans. You've probably got You go into a room with the people who work at your company. I bet you a lot of them say, I wish we were doing this. I wish we were doing that. We should be doing this. Are you yourself, because you are a, a vet, offering advice to people that maybe perhaps the kind of war that we might have to fight is different from the kind that maybe their parents fought?
4: It's going to be vastly different, Jim. And what we're trying to do at our company is be a bit of a pathfinder to drive 21st century digital technologies into our armed forces and national defense really to convince any potential adversary that it really isn't worth taking a measure, an attack, any kind of effort an armed conflict against the United States or our allies. But we really do have to bring and marshal, if you will, all of American industry together to work on this. We've got alliances with Nvidia, Microsoft, Intel, uh, and others to actually bring that digital technology more quickly into the defense enterprise, We want to prevent a future war, because if it happens, it'll be devastating and it will be very different.
2: But, Jim, wouldn't some potential adversary say, you know what, they have knocked their arsenal down to to help Ukraine and then further down to help Israel? And the democracy arsenal is just too close to being empty for America to feel safe.
4: Uh, I don't believe we're in a position where we're in an unsafe position, Jim. But what I do want to try to drive into the defense production system is using the C. Taleb's view of anti-fragility. Let's take out the fragility. Let's allow ourselves the room and the resources to scale quickly if we need to and increase production. That in and of itself will be a deterrent to a future conflict potentially. If the arsenal of democracy really gets strengthened And the fragility is taken out.
2: What would happen if someone said to you in the government, you know what, Jim, you got to double the number of F 35s that you're making right now because it's such a great plane? Capable of doing it?
4: Well, we're capable of doing it with investment among government, our company, and our suppliers. It would take a few years to pull that together, Uh, but we were asked actually uh, a couple of years ago to double the production of some of the systems that have been so effective in Ukraine and uh, in in other uh, arenas in the world, including the Patriot missile. And we are in the process of raising that by about 60 percent. That's good. Okay, I did
2: not know that. Now, now, Jim, uh, uh, there's kind of this feeling that there's a low tech war that can that, that the bad guys do. I mean, look, we have drones, we have terrific technology, but the low tech governments seem to be able to project power with very inexpensive drones that seem to be able to be more efficient than we thought. What can we do to make it so that they can hurt our
4: service people? Well, we wanna bring, again, more advanced technologies against these basic kinds of threats. And so there are approaches like using microwave, using mm-hmm. lasers, using electronic warfare to jam and defeat these kinds of, you know, small, relatively cheap drones. And we'll want to go ahead and, and develop our own, but develop our own drones that are much more survivable, much more controllable and uh, much more uh, resilient, if you will, uh, to counter those kinds of efforts. So we want to be on offense and defense and use the latest technology to actually make that. Fantastic. happen. Fantastic. Now, where are you these
2: days? Is Veterans Day coming up on uh, the desire for others to share your predilection, to hire people who worked in uh, who served given how good I know you've told
4: me multiple times they do at the job. Well, we are voting with our feet on veterans. We have about 20 percent of our employees are veterans, 24,000 in Lockheed Martin. We hired about 3,600 last year. We got 34 open jobs that we're recruiting for right now this year. And so I'd encourage any veteran or anyone that knows a veteran that's listening to this program tonight, let them know about our company and our sector. We welcome them to come join us.
2: And what do veterans bring to your company that maybe people who didn't serve uh, I don't know as much about?
4: Well, what do what you bring is, uh, and you can kind of see it in the background there, you get a lot of responsibility at a young age. You have to lead. You don't get to command people. You got to lead people, some of whom might be more experienced, older than you. Um, but if you learn those skills about responsibility, leadership by example, when you're in your 20s, and you can actually take those forward your whole career. And the mission dedication that you have, whether it's Lockheed Martin or any other company, you get a veteran on your team, they're gonna be committed. That's our experience.
2: And when you're talking to an Intel or to an NVIDIA or any of the software companies, doesn't it help to have someone in the room who says, look, this is what this would do for me if I were commanding people overseas?
4: Yeah, absolutely it does. And and actually many of those companies have uh, veterans themselves as part of their teams. Uh, We were just at Google yesterday Uh, And there was six people in the room. I'd say three or four of them had actual veteran military experience. So we're out there and we want to work together. Tech industry, telecom, uh, uh, the Intel's and chip manufacturers of the world. We want to work together to drive this national defense forward and really try to prevent these conflicts from happening.
2: One last question. You can help me to uh, figure this out. Look, when I listen to the president of Ukraine, I think he makes a ballot case. He needs more weapons. When I listen to uh, the premier of Israel, I mean, when you listen to Netanyahu, he wants more weapons. Uh, But these are political decisions for you, aren't they? I mean, these are not decisions where you can go and say, you know what, I think we could really help Ukraine with long range missiles because you have a great assemble of missiles. And that's what everybody wants. You are not able to advocate. Right. I mean, you are able to say, look, our missiles can do this, but you're not in in there saying, listen, if you gave them these missiles,
4: they could take uh, they could take Crimea.
2: That's not your job.
4: Absolutely right, Jim. We don't get involved in policy. That's not our role in industry to do that. But our role is to provide information on what capabilities we have, what we can do in cooperating with allies to make those capabilities better. And we provide that information to government officials and then they decide who, what, when and where and how. Uh, any of our products get delivered to uh, overseas countries. And
2: are they asking the questions? I mean, sometimes I feel like, wow, we just learned that we're going to send some certain kind of missile. I said, well, why weren't we sending that before? I'm always confused about what we give Ukraine and what we give Israel versus what they want. And I think a lot of that is because they're pretty secretive about it. We don't know what's going to be next.
4: Well, our government officials that work with industry directly, especially at the leadership level, we have a great rapport with them. And all the way through the ranks because information sharing and capability understanding is really important for both sides that exchange is happening the political decisions the deployment decisions the selection of what weapons go to what country, again, all in government, Jim.
2: Well, look, I'm glad that I needed to understand that myself, honestly, because sometimes I get mad when somebody's not getting what I think is their allies and they're not getting the help we need. But you always tell us the straight story. That's Jim Teglitt, Chairman, President and CEO of Lockheed Martin. Jim, uh, uh, thank you for serving and thank everyone at your company for serving us. We approach Veterans Day, but every day should be Veterans Day. Thank you, sir. Good night, Jim. Thank you. Man, I back back after the break? Coming up, has a
1: so-called regime change at the Fed given stocks room to run? Kramer goes off the charts to get a read on the S&P and more next.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business.
2: How much has this market changed in the last few sessions? I mean, going to last week, the bears were in charge, right? And they were very aggressive. The point where I, I think they got too complacent, resulting in the S&P 500's largest rally more than a year. Thanks to the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department's auction schedule for the next few months, we got a sudden shift from doom and gloom to outright optimism. So has the market experienced a regime change here, or are we simply looking at a temporary bear market rally like so many strategists and billionaires say? That's the most important question on Wall Street. Now, and I want to take an empirical approach to answer it which is why we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's that real smart technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. In mid-September, if you remember, she predicted that the oil rally would soon fizzle. Boy, has that ever happened, right? It really broke down below all the moving averages take probably below $80. And right now, Gardner thinks this sure looks like a regime change. First of all, the CBOE volatility index, VIX for short, has collapsed, suggesting we're going from a world of high volatility sell-offs to a slower pace grind higher. I like that. Remember, the VIX is often described as the fear gauge, and now it's back to healthy levels. It makes sense because the Federal Reserve sure sounds like it recognizes the risk of raising interest rates too aggressively, as I said at the top of the show, and that is the message we got from j just last week when he had the Federal Market Committee meeting. Sure, he hasn't closed the door in another tightening. It's not going to do that. But it's clear the Fed might be done if we keep getting softer economic data, like maybe the CPI next week. However, Garner thinks the market shift from high to low volatility has actually been in the works for a long time, arguably since the big bottom 13 months ago. Now she says we're simply all at the tail end of the process. From August through last week, the bears got a chance to capitalize on fears of higher interest rates. Garner believes that was the last gasp. Yeah, she thinks we're headed for a different kind of market, with sedate rallies followed by measured and shallow corrections. That's called nirvana, people. How do we get there? Take a look at the weekly chart of the S&P 500 futures. Garner points out the S&P rebounded off its 50-week moving average, see that right there, uh, during that last leg down, and has now closed favorably above a key pivot line at around 4,300 to 44,330. Now, if that pivot line holds on a weekly basis, Garner says the bulls stay in control, with strong odds of the S&P making a run to the, yes, 4,700 level. That would be pretty great if you're bull. In other words, an intraday breach of this level followed by a Friday close above it keeps the bulls in charge. But if the S&P doesn't hold above the 4,300 level, then it indeed could drift down to the internal trend line of 3,995. And if we get some kind of horrible surprise, then yes, you're probably going to see 3,775. You you can't take that stuff off the table. It's got to be considered. Now, when you check out the relative strength index down here, an index, by the way, that's an important uh, momentum indicator. Uh, this has been making its way higher without getting into overbought territory. See, if it was right there, then suddenly it would be a lot riskier situation. As Garner sees it, the s has a natural trading range uh, running between 3,775, okay, to 4,730. And with the RSI trending upward, she thinks we're heading toward the high end of the range. Target price, then. However, it's worth noting that this long-term natural trading range has broken down a few times. I mean, during the COVID shutdown, the March of 2020, you see that go down there. We fell below it. As the massive COVID stimulus packages started kicking in, Fed took interest rates to zero. We then spent a great deal of time above this range in late 2020 and 2021. Now, the world's basically back to normal, if you can call it that. So Garner's not surprised to see the S&P 500 trading near the middle of the natural range. That's kind of what we want. See, we don't want complacency and we don't want craziness, all right? It's also worth noting that even though we've had a brutal time since the market peaked this summer, When you look at the long-term trend, Garner's adamant this remains a bull market with a pattern of higher highs and higher lows. I know no strategist who thinks like Carly. That's why I wanted her on so much tonight. If you asterisk the COVID stimulus rally, the bullish trend here is much more obvious. Now, all of this comes down to the interest rates, right? I mean, especially long-term rates. Stocks can rally because bonds have stopped going down and price and up in yield. So why don't we take a look at the monthly chart of the 10-year Treasury note futures. When we had Garner on the show for chart week, she predicted the 10-year would peak with a 4.5% yield. That turned out to be a little bit optimistic, but not that far. Ten-year ultimately plunged until its yield hit 5% in October, moderately surpassing her predictions, okay? Not cataclysmic, wrong. As a matter of fact, I thought it was really right. But as part of the messy chart, Garner's outlook for the 10-year remains the same. She thinks that with the tumble down to 105, the bond market has likely put in its capitulation low, okay, guys? Look at this capitulation low, ain't going to 6% according to her, Uh, something that should be followed by either stabilization to the minimum or, more likely, the budding of a long-term bond rally. As of today, the 10-year sports a 4.57 yield. But if Garner turns out to be uh, wrong about it, then the 10-year could sink to 104, where it would yield 5.3. I don't think that's going to happen, but she's certainly putting in the equation. However, and this is the important however, even if we do see those levels, she thinks the bulk of the interest rate pain is most likely behind us Boy, is that great news for the stock market. That's one of the reasons why we could rally so hard today. Crucially, the 10-year note futures have now rebounded above the trend line at a time when speculators are still massively short the market. Remember, that's what she said would cause this rally, meaning declining you know, decline in yields, meaning there are very few potential sellers left, and the seasonal pattern of the bond market begins to turn higher. Garner says this is a recipe for trend change. I say it's a recipe for a short squeeze. In fact, she's feeling some deja vu in the Treasury market. In 2018, the bond market bottomed with a capitulation in October. The backdrop was similar, overly bear sentiment and a persistently hawkish Federal Reserve. If this is a 2018 repeat, she thinks Treasury yields could be cut in half in the coming years. The 10-year yielding 2 to 3 percent might not be on anyone's radar today, including not mine. But near zero interest rates didn't seem to be in the cards in November of 2018, either, did it? Yet within a couple of years, that's exactly what we got. Even if this isn't the beginning of a multi-year bond rally, Garner believes it could at least be a low similar to last October, where prices rebounded steadily for several months before the decline resumed. That alone will give the stock market plenty of runway. Plus, look at this RSI. We well, have the relative strength in the next. While the 10-year has been making lower lows, the RSI has started making, yes, higher highs. You know what that's called? It's called a bullish divergence, something that often signals a trend change. Very good for the stock market. Finally, take a look at this chart. This is the seasonal pattern. It's going to make you real happy if you're bull. of uh, The S P 500. You can see that the period from November 20th through the first week of December tends to be great for stocks, with another big push higher, typically coming between Christmas and New Year's. Will you look at this? You want to, want to miss this because Mike Wilson says you should miss it? Here's the bottom line. The charts interpreted by Carly Garner suggest the S P 500 is back in bull market mode. And the path of least resistance is indeed higher, aided by a much more benign bond market. How about we go to Joe in my home state, of New Jersey? Joe. Thank you for taking my call. And
1: Mr. Kramer, um, always diversification is the the biggest thing that I get from you yes. when I watch your show.
0: I so mean, you don't get
2: all that jam of trading Apple 17 times and buying and selling Nvidia video like everybody says I do? What's up? Yes.
0: Uh, people
2: have been missing impression of me. I, I've, I've never denied that. Go ahead. I currently own Ford, and with Ford giving up a lot to their employees,
1: will this hurt them or help them? And let, let's not forget, Ford has the number one selling vehicle,
2: the F-150. Well, and that's why I'm sticking with this, even though I feel like I've been uh, – you know, there's a couple of stocks where, where I've been hurt. Now, this one's is not, not – uh, They've done everything they can. Who saw Sean Fain coming? Uh, But uh, My chapel trust continues to hold Ford, but I've said to Ford very clearly that uh, this is the straw, and it will break my back if it does not go up this quarter. Jim in Colorado. Jim. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Uh, Ah, Jim, I'm I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm thinking about getting invested in a medical device company,
1: and I've kind of narrowed it down to two, and I'd like to know your thoughts on them. Uh, One is
2: Agilent. The other one is Medtronic. I'm kind of a little partial to Medtronic because it's got the higher dividend. Well, Medtronic Yields, could I'd be like Med, Medtronic could be bottoming, but they actually have pretty much the same chart. You know, look, if interest rates are bottom, this group can put in a bottom. Uh, I do think Agilent is actually better run right now than Medtronic. Medtronic has actually surprised me, and how they haven't done a very good job. I feel awful about that because I've liked the company for a very long time. But you know what, when I don't speak my mind, what happens is I end up losing my mind. The SP 500 is back in bull mode, according to the charts that's interpreted by Carly Garner. Right now, the path of least resistance is higher, thanks in part to a more subdued bond market, as I said at the top of the show, much more made money hit. Including my exclusive with Tanger. Holiday season approaching, I'm getting a read on the consumer with the CEO. And forget the parlor game when it comes to the Fed's next move. I'll tell you why it's time to focus on the data. And all your calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. If long-term interest rates are truly done going higher, then there are entire sectors that have suddenly gone from untouchable to investable. Take the Real Estate Investment Trust, which in some of the year's worst performance, they tend to be high yielders and their dividends get less attractive with high rates, even if they're doing well. But what if long rates have peak? Then it's a lot easier to circle back to the good ones. I'm talking about companies like Tanger Factory Outlet uh, Centers. And by the way, that's soon to be just known as Tanger. It's a leading operator of open-air outlet centers. I usually love this an environment where the consumer's feeling overstretched because outlet stores are great places to find bargains. Of course, Tanger stock got crushed when rates started exploding higher in August. By the time it bottomed last Monday, it was down 15% from its highs. But now it's moving in the right direction again, especially after the company reported a great quarter last night after the close. Tanger had get this 98% occupancy rate, with same-store sale net operating income up 7.6 percent, and funds from operations coming in higher than expected. That's the REIT's equivalent of earnings, by the way. Plus, our uh, raises for your forecast across the board. Don't wonder the stock for like 4.5 percent today. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Stephen Yaloff. He's the president and CEO of Tanger. for we'll learn more about the situation with Yaloff. Welcome back to Mad Money.
5: Thanks for having me back, Jim. It's great to see you.
2: All right. Well, first, I got to ask you, does it bother you, Stephen, that it really doesn't matter sometimes how well you're doing? Because you've been doing sensational. If interest rates are going higher, people sell tanger. It's just kind of what happens.
5: You know, it, it success. We, we're, we're not going to get tired of being successful, particularly in markets like this.
2: Well, that makes sense. I mean, you do have 700 different companies who avail themselves of Tanger. I think that's a good reason, by the way, of losing the name Factory Outlet, because if there's 700 companies in there, not all of them are just trying to be places to dump off stuff. There's a lot of places that are are giving you some incredible merchandise just a good bargains that it's not being dumped at all.
5: That's right. And like we talked about the last time I was on, Jim, you know, we've uh, been executing to food and beverage, more experiential uses in our shopping centers. You know, we're, we're trying to speak to the customer that wants to shop a little bit differently than the, than the uh, outlet shopper of years before. So we're repositioning our assets. We're putting, them, we're putting them in new markets. We just opened up Nashville two weeks ago, and which happens to be an amazing market. But Nashville looks a lot different than uh, the traditional outlet center. We've done a great job of reinventing.
2: Well, it, is Nashville replicable? Because, I mean, I see that you've got 290,000 square feet of open-air shopping center. I mean, there's a, a green. Uh, everything I hear about 60 retail stores, this is what I want to go to, seven different buildings. Can we have one in the Northeast, please?
5: That's right, and and that's exactly what we're looking to do. We think this is a great model, very replicable. But what's really important about it is, in addition to the brand, the outlet brands that you you love, and I know that you shop, particularly when you're in our shopping center in Riverhead, Long Island. We've got a lot of the same brands there, but we also have some new brands, new brands to outlet. And more importantly, we've got a lot of new food and beverage. And I think that that's really what's getting the customer to come more frequently and stay longer when they get there. And obviously getting them to spend more dollars.
2: Well, we find that when we go to the Wine & River, as you mentioned, we do every time it's raining, frankly, because we're looking for something to do. Uh, There are stores there that the e-commerce uh, website actually acts as a showroom for the store. Some people say, hi, you go to the store, that's the showroom for e-commerce. It seems to be the opposite. You have places where the fir- where you have great merchandise, you see it on the web, and you go pick it up at Tanger Factory. And well, t- now Tanger.
5: Well, that's right. And, you know, that's the that's what the shopping center of the future is going to bring to the customer. You know, the retailers are looking for better ways to interact with their customer. They're looking for places for click and collect. They're, for, they're looking for better curbside pickup. We designed all of that into our Nashville Shopping Center. So that, not Nashville Shopping Center, truly uh, a shopping center for the future and one where we'd listen to our customers and listen to our retailers and ask them, what are they looking for in a new design? They've spoken, we've executed and the ro- results are right. Right
2: there. Well, you, you probably have a better view of this than most. I mean, during this whole tightening cycle, which has been furious and fast, uh, we've seen uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, go under, and we see Rite Aid file bankruptcy. I would have thought that many more stores would have gone under than this. What is the underlying strength of the retailers that they've been able to withstand this, this vicious rate cycle?
5: Customers love to shop. Customers love to go out and shop. They see it as entertainment. They see it as something to do. They see it as therapy. And you know, we like to create these environments where they want to come see and visit us as frequently as they can by adding new amenities, by adding new retail stores, by constantly flowing newness and freshness. It's, you know, you know I, I've told you in the past, I've worked at The Gap, and Mickey Drexler used to say all the time, you know, that you constantly wanna bring newness, newness and freshness into your store. Well, we take that method and we apply it to our shopping centers. And we're always looking for the new retailers. We're looking for new concepts new experiences. What does the customer want to do and how do we get them to come and shop with us more frequently?
2: How about these spaces that are, you know, the 10% you have that are kind of like, I guess I would have called them pop-up stores, but they're short term. Uh, how does that work? I know you can apparently cut them out if you have to, but it makes it so that you don't have any empty storefronts?
5: Well, yeah, we, we, all, we often say here that most of our shoppers don't know the difference between a short-term lease and a, and a regular permanent lease. But everybody knows the difference between a closed store and an open store. Right. And one of the things that we're constantly thinking about is how do we keep the stores occupied? How do we keep them vibrant? But I'm not looking for just put in small mom-and-pop retailers just to, just to keep the spaces and the lights on and, and, and rent paying. That's always... That's a great result. But if we can bring in people that are new to the business and then expand them throughout our portfolio as they become more successful, we're incubating new tenants, thinking about new concepts and and growing our business that way.
2: Are there enough spots uh, in areas like New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey, where you can still build? Because Nashville's a huge footprint and we all kind of want what you offer. But I don't know if there's enough space. You know, if you think about the footprint of outlet
5: across America, we're only 70 million square feet. And you look at all of retail across America, it's 7 billion square feet. We're only 1%. I just think that there's room to grow. There are markets that don't have outlet yet. And if you take a look at what we built in Nashville, a 290,000 square foot model, that's a great hybrid use of both outlet retail, great food and beverage. I think that there's room for that kind of retail across America. And we're looking for those locations and we're definitely looking to grow this portfolio.
2: Well, uh, congratulations to you. Of course, congratulations to Steve Tanger. I've known forever who is going to be non-executive chair, and he and his father have done a fabulous job, and you're the steward of it, and I think this quarter demonstrates how well you're doing, Stephen Yaloff-Tanger, president and CEO, SKT. Hey, Steve, I love you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Okay, man, money's back in the
1: Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky's the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round.
2: Next. Time it's over the lightning round. Kramer, before I roll the numbers, he's from Bye, 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 pals. But you would and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skeed? That it's over the lightning round. Kramer, we start with Lucas in Minnesota. Lucas,
3: booyah, Professor Kramer.
2: Happy Thank Tuesday. You. How are you? I've got one that I bought quite some time ago for okay. dividend yield. Yes. But uh, can you tell me what's going to happen with Clorox? I think the bottom is in in Clorox. I think that the quarter was okay. I think that the hack is behind them. I think Leonard Reynolds doing a very good job. I would own the stock. Ryan, Arizona. Ryan. Hey, how are you, Mr. Kramer? I am doing well, Ryan. How about you? I'm, I'm kind of doing good, but you are the best. Oh, thank And I have a you. question for you. Sure. I'm almost ready to retire and need another source of income. My friend Steven says I should invest in monthly high-paying dividend stocks like C. No, if you're going to do that, you should be in realty think? income, letter O. That A, G, N, C has been a dog so long. I mean, it's really just, it's just it's just been a value trap. But our, but realty income has not that. It yields 6%. That's what you get monthly. Uh, that's the ticket. Brian in uh, California. Brian.
0: Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? I'm
2: doing well. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Jim, I would like your opinion on Cisco, please. Okay, a lot of people decided to sell Cisco today. Why? Because DataDog competes against Splunk, and Cisco bought Splunk. I think that's short-sighted, and I think Cisco's a buy. Let's go to Samantha in Connecticut. Samantha. Hi. Hi, Samantha, how are you?
0: I'm good, how are you? I'm doing all right, what's the matter? So here is my question. J&J had a good third quarter, but seems to be pushing back billions in liabilities for losses like Calc with the right. same sales bankruptcy tactic. Um, it's no work, but is this a buy?
2: Well, I'll tell you, I mean, when you keep doing the same thing over, uh, over and over again and expect a different result, I don't have to tell you what that stands for. And that's exactly what J&J is doing, and it's rather shocking. I wish the CEO would come out and explain to me why they have such an ill-advised strategy. Because even anyone who went to... Look, I went to Harvard Law, and I'm a lawyer, and I got to tell you, I at least I got some horse sense, and that team does not. Let's go to Vet Max in Chicago. Max. Hey, Kramer, calling about the premier healthcare REIT, Ventas VTR. It got, it got recommended today, and I think that's okay, but it's only got a 4% yield. I think you need to get more vague in order to be able to be in that group. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, the economy can be one big puzzle. Kramer puts the pieces together. Don't miss it, next.
2: I don't know about you, but I'm sick of playing the parlor game of guessing the Fed's next move. The data will tell you, but you need to put the mosaic together yourself. You have to notice when things are going the Fed's way, so it doesn't need to push more than it already has. If the Fed's winning its fight against inflation, the stone is rolling downhill, they don't need to chase it and push some more. And that's where I think the Fed is today. Inflation is becoming tame, so there's no need for the Fed to push with more rate hikes unless the economy actually does heat up again. Just consider what's happening as we speak. Today, oil collapsed. West Texas Intermediate plunging 77 bucks, down 4%. Last year, right now, was in the 90s. The price of the pump will soon go down. That's terrific. Last year, natural gas was just under seven bucks. Now it's at three and change. Most people in this country get their heat from natural gas. A stunning decline, it'll impact millions of people in a fantastic way. These are huge wins. Housing inflation, we know that homes are up about 35% from the pre pandemic benchmark year of 2019. For a long time, housing seemed invincible because demand was so strong. People simply can't afford to buy homes with a mortgage rate at 8%. I found that gratifying to hear, and that's why I like the D.R. Horton call, the nation's largest home builder. It's not satisfied with the 4% decline in the price of homes year over year. Horton has decided to make an anti-inflationary stand. As David Auld, the executive vice chair who hosted the call, told us, quote, we are focused on consolidating market share by supplying more homes at affordable price points to meet home buyer demand, end quote. And that's precisely what's supposed to happen at this point in the business cycle. Housing's going the Fed's way. Now, we have a lot of anecdotal information that rents are going down. Today, Bloomberg published an excellent piece about how there's an apartment surge that's bringing rent relief to many previously overheated towns. Plus, there are millions of square feet of apartment space coming on now that was started when the coast was clear of COVID. What else? High cost of used cars has been a real problem for the Fed, but there's good news there, too. Last night, we spoke to Ernie Garcia, the CEO of Carvana. Listen to what he said.
1: I think there's no question it's too high, and I think we we hope they come down, we expect them to come down, uh, and we look forward to them coming down because we think it'd be great for our customers. In 2019, the average car that we were selling to our customer was a three-year-old car that cost $19,500. And today, the average car that we're selling to our customers is a 5.7-year-old car, and it costs about
2: $25,000. All right. Right on cue, we learned from Phil LeBeau this morning that used car prices in October were down 4 percent from October 2022, down 2.3 percent just from the last month. I think they're going much lower because of a glut caused by higher rates. I'm out there saying that. I think I'm going to be right. Finally, the last piece of the puzzle we're seeing an astounding decline in the price of the raw ingredients in food, as we've heard from a host of farm equipment makers, along with the seed and fertilizer companies. CNH Industrial, the old case New Holland, saw the price of equipment come down big. Its stock hit a new low on slowing numbers directly related to grain pricing coming down. That's what happens when you get bumper crops, food, inflation, beaten. Oil and gas, homes, rents, food. Hmm. Now, let's see. Next, next week, we get the October Consumer Price Index reading. What happens if we get some negative numbers? I'll tell you what people say. Aha, uh-huh, that's why everything rallied. Isn't it better just to know ahead of time? In short, when it comes to the Fed's plan to fight inflation, all I can say is, don't sweat the program. I like to say there's always a bull market summer, and I promise you I'll to find it just for you right here on Med Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Last Call starts Now.